Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this podcast is not about training horses. Instead, we're learning how horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people have land. We need healthy pastures for our horses. Becoming better stewards of the land is a winning combination. It's good for our horses, good for us, and good for the planet. Recently, I've been visiting around the planet to see what some of my friends have been doing with their land. This is part three of a conversation with Jane Jackson. Jane and her husband live in northern Vermont. Jane has her horses, and her husband raises sheep and cattle, which means together they have been learning how to be better grass farmers. This week, Jane starts us out by talking about silvopasture. That's something that I know many of you who have woodlots may find of very real interest. So silver pasture is a combination of forest and ag land, basically. And it's funny because I looked it up and the, the examples they used were in Scotland and the photos they had were beautiful, what I would call pasture land with a couple nice big trees in it. And that's not what we have. What we have is untamed forest land that my husband somehow has managed to put fence up down through. And he puts, he started with the cattle. He primarily put the cattle down in there to start opening it up so that it is not that dense, dense berry bush, you know, mess that it was that again, doesn't, even when it's been logged and you get the big trees out to let more sunlight in, there's still that dense undergrowth. Um, And so the cattle have done a phenomenal job and he could sort of use the logging paths to put fence up to facilitate that. It's so thick down in there that we, we tried to, (laughs) I said, let's walk the property line last fall. And we spent an hour and a half down there. And I think we went less than a mile because it is just, you can't get through there between downed trees and bushes and ravines. Cause as flat as the property is up here, when you get to the end of it, it drops off pretty precipitously. And there are these little ravines and you got to climb down into the ravine and claw yourself back up the other side. And there's this one section that's so thick it won't, you know, I'm not, I don't even know how he's going to get the cattle down in there, but they like it because they're in out of the bugs, you know, so they're rubbing, they're scratching on branches and bushes and all that sort of thing. And they're just opening up the under part. So in Vermont, as in a lot of places, you get a tax advantage for having, for basically managing your land as opposed to just letting it be wild. So, and I don't know enough about it, but about the, you know, forest fire risk and things like that, you know, that the, you want healthy trees. You don't want it so thick that 
it's killing out the undergrowth and then the big ones get big and they fall over and there's nothing underneath. And I'm talking like an idiot, but anyway, so the silver pastures is combining forest with the ag. And so the horses, the cattle are going in and they're browsing. They're not grazing so much, although now grass is coming in, but there is still a thick forest there around them but it's allowing both of those to go on at one time. And historically you have had to have your land designated as ag land or forest land. You have to have a minimum of 25 acres in this state, but it has to be one or the other. So he did a lot of work in the last year with a forester and with people from the state and ag people who came out and would see what he was doing and you know, there's historically this, the forestry people don't want animals down in there because they're going to rub on the trees and they're going to girdle the trees, they're going to damage them. And on the other hand, the ag people are like, no, this, you know, you've got trees coming up in your forest. This isn't really ag land because this isn't really, you know, it's got other stuff. So for them to come together and agree that, yes, this is carefully managed and it's both forestry and grazing land both so that we were able to get it designated as what they call current use so we get the discounted tax rates but it's not you know they do they do need to come out and inspect and make sure that you're managing it appropriately and so now we don't just have to keep the forester happy but we've got to keep the ag people and the forestry people happy but they were they were content i mean they must have spent four hours tromping around the woods one day last fall when they came out to inspect, so. That's really fascinating. With, your, with the understory that's in the forest, is it, is it relatively, um, are they in, like invasive species under there or are they kind of native species that are in the forest at the moment? So where we are in Indiana, a lot of, a lot of the land that is forest, you know, was, it was originally forest, it was cut down. It, a lot of what's come back is, I mean, we have some big native trees, but we also have a lot of invasive understory, things like bush honeysuckle, um, Asian bush honeysuckle. So they, even though it's, a lot of areas look like good, you know, good forests, they're actually full of, yeah, full of things that probably shouldn't be there. But I don't know what it's like where you are in, in Vermont. If it's... There's the only thing I can identify is berries, okay. you know, thick, thick, thick blackberries, and raspberry bushes yeah. and of course the cattle love them yeah. and um, do a good job of making paths through them to get through and then there's something else that I know when you try to walk through it you, you just can't because it kind of grabs your feet and you, <laughs> you can't barely get through it and my husband was telling me what that was and I'm pretty sure that was an invasive but I can't tell you off the top of my head what it was you know a lot of it's that small quick growing type of tree that well and there's a lot it's interesting because the further south you go the more hardwoods we don't have a lot of hardwood we have a lot of softwood so there are lots of sort of sickly looking little pine things that are never going to amount to much and they get all twisted trying to find their way up to the sunlight do you have maples in your area they're definitely here just not our on our property for some reason okay. or other it's it's the, and it could be the steepness of the slope that 
drops off. I'm not sure. It, just going to our neighbors. We have new neighbors that have bought right adjacent to us. And they just invited us to walk on their property. And we walked in there and I was like, wow, this is all hardwood. And there was, you know, lots of nice maple in there. So I don't know why. I'm not quite sure what the what the difference is. But theirs is where, I, where I've seen the maple on their property is the, is the more level area and where, you know, most of our level area has been cleared because all that was there was, was the aspen poplar stuff. In this area, the undergrowth is not that because we have so many deer. Uh -huh. So they're doing what your cows would be doing. Okay. To clear the woods. But it's still an interesting, it's an interesting concept because I can see somebody saying, I need more pasture. Let me take down that woods. Yeah. And here you're saying, no, you actually can leave the trees and have pasture and have a tax credit. Yeah. So you can have it all. Well, and there your your animals are eating more diverse diets yes. as well. They're not just eating grasses, but they're browsing. You know, yep. they're eating leaves of little things that they can reach. And well, it's uh, Michaela Hempen. Her horses are turned out. They go out in the woods, and yeah. that's they're up they're up in the mountains, and that's they're not out on pasture. They go out in the forest, which yeah. is an enchanting yeah. idea. And when you see Asphaloth, who is a you know, he's a, a white Arab, and, and at dusk when he's running through the woods, you truly think you've seen a unicorn. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, it's, it's very magical. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was a kid, my horses, my horses, our family's horses, we used to turn out in this 10-acre area at night in the summer. And there was a small meadow but there were all these different sort of micro diverse areas. As I say, there were the small meadow where they would go to eat. And there was this one woodlot that was thick, 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 thick. And those were the, the only mornings we had to go find them was when it was pouring rain because they would be in that thick little woodlot because it would protect yeah. them from the rain. And, you know, there was no building. There was no quote unquote shelter, but they were happy as clams there. And I look at that now and I think, that's where our horses should yes. be living. Why did we spend all this time developing these pristine little pastures when yeah. that kind of variety is exactly what, you know, and then they had shelter from the bugs and they had shelter from the rain and they had, they had everything they needed. We so. had that my, when growing up in England, my, um, I had a Welsh, uh, Welsh pony, Welsh cob cross, and he, he was out on a, with, there were six of them on a 15 acre field and they were out all the time they didn't have a stable or a barn or anything they were just out and it was the same it had kind of part woodland and I remember he had a lovely big white blaze on his face and soon after we got him he was very he was only four he was young and I went out and I was so worried he had um he had bumps on his nose and it was it looked a strange color I thought he you know it looked really uh, I thought he'd been bleeding it was I it, he looked really bad and we did he'd been eating blackberries and Piggy got the little prickles in his nose and got all bumpy and it was stained with blackberry juice. <laughs> yeah. They love they they love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's part of the the have your cake and eat it too is creating the the habitat diversity to give our horses entertainment. Yes. Yeah. You know, to give them that enrichment of uh different plants that they can eat the 
the choice of, of you can be here, or you can be there, and all of that, from, from my point of view, is part of what I want for the horses, that uh, I want them to be able to say, I'd like to be here at this time of the day, and then I'd like to be, I'd like to have the, the freedom to choose between different habitat zones and to have the opportunity to experience yeah. being in the woods yeah. and so on. I haven't really achieved that. They don't have access into the woods, but then they're, they've become such hard bodies <laughs> that just as you would have to train, you know, you've trained them to, uh, to eat weeds, I would have to train them to stop being such homebodies. Well, you know, it's interesting because I found this article, um, Heal Your Horse with an Herbal Pasture, because I was just looking for what kind of, I, I did a thing on my social media recently, and I said, what, what ideas do people have for enrichment? And someone said different, um, different herbs, you know, rose petals or thyme or something like that to explore. So I did a little research trying I wanted to make sure what I was offering them was safe. Safe, yes. I found this this article on planting your own pasture with putting herbs in it. And I thought, oh, now, wouldn't that be fun to put herb plants around the edge of the arena? Because my pastures go right up to the arena. And I could have these lovely smelling herbs as I rode or worked horses. And the horses would have access to nibble on them when I wanted. And I wonder if they would survive yeah. or if they would just eat them right down to nothingness. How much time you would have to plant right. to have it able to survive or with it, if they would self-regulate and go, oh, I feel like a little, you know, thyme or chamomile today. Yeah. We had a lot of chamomile at our former farm. And I remember at certain times of the year, it smelled like apple when they would step on it and eat it. Oh. And their breath would be just delicious that. But anyway, so that's that's something I'm sort of thinking. Well, that would be fun. Maybe I should plant some some herb plants around, you know, where the, along an edge where they could access them, but maybe not maybe not trample on them yeah. and risk killing them, and give that other little bit of variety for them to graze on and smell. And I love that idea. I like what the idea see. of sort of growing your own biodiverse hay mix, as it were. In, instead of having a lawn, you have this, you plant these things that you don't really have in your pasture or you can't, you're struggling to get them established in your pasture. Say you board yeah. and you don't have control yep. over your pasture and you don't have control over what's really happening in terms of horse management, but you have a suburban house that has a lawn. Well, you plant a little mini pasture and then you just like you go out with your scissors and you that day you carry your your bouquet of this is what I've grown yes, for you today. I love that. Which your horses the that the micronutrients yeah. that they need when the yes. pasture that they're on is impoverished. I love that idea. And the hay that they're eating is yeah. impoverished because of yeah. land management. And that's what I've just started doing now is experimenting with different dried herbs to see what they like and get them used to eating it so that I know yeah. what I might want to plant fresh herbs. Right now, my, my kitten has decided that the chamomile tea bags I keep trying to take out and open, you know, he steals the tea bag right out of my hand and I takes off from across the barn with it. So I have to get another tea bag out to sprinkle in, but I've been sprinkling 
you know, mint in and thyme in and chamomile in and just want to make sure they like it before I, you know, I don't want to turn them to, but you know what else? I got sort of lucky in that I got worried in early December that I was running out of hay too fast. So I asked the man that I'd bought hay from in the summer if he had more and I could, because we didn't have any snow yet. I mean, it went, we went so long this year without I snow. Know. And I thought, well, I can, I can still get to the barn to get hay in. I should do it now. And he said, well, I can give you a hundred bales of first cut, but other than that, all I have is second cut. And I said, well, I mean, he told me what it had tested and it didn't sound like it had tested too rich. And I thought, well, I can, I can supplement those who deserve it at night in the barn with it. Right. Well, because of the test, I've decided that everybody can have it and they are so excited about it. They get a little half a flake in a, you know, I fill my hay nets with three or four flakes of first cut and I put half a flake of second and they are just so thrilled with it. It's just, it's brightened their winter. I am sure such that warmer days when I think, well, you don't need the second cut today. I'll give you straight first. They follow me right back to the barn. <laughs> you forgot something. You forgot a crucial ingredient. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So yeah, variety is good for all of us. Yes, yes. Well, it certainly sounds as though you have created some, you know, pretty amazing transformation, and in not very much time. When you've been on the property just five or six years, the fact that your horses are on your pastures and your pastures are more lush instead of yeah. more eaten down is huge. It's really huge. Yeah, and how much land? You know, four and a half acres isn't for six horses. Isn't and I have stopped. I used to turn them out in the evening as well. I used to, you know, turn them out in the morning for several hours. And then when the bugs got bad, they basically decide on themselves. Right. You know, it's like somebody flips a switch and everybody comes galloping back up to the barn. Mm -hmm. And that's when I would open the doors and let everybody in their stalls out of the bugs for the day. And then I used to put them back out in the evening. It was cool again. But reading what I'm reading about the sugar levels in grasses, that is the one compromise I have made to, you know, putting them out on high, tall, tall grass is, all right, maybe I shouldn't do it in the evening. You know, you're getting out. And that's hard because they would very, you know, I turn them back out at four o'clock, but they only can go to the sacrifice paddock. You know, they're, they're locked in there and they've got lots of hay. And they go right to the gate and look at me pointedly as if to say, it's really not that hot and buggy. We'd be happy to go out and graze again. But I do worry about the sugar levels in the grass that late in the day. So I, you know, I don't put them back out there. Yeah, that's been one of the things that I have really, I think, adhered to is the time of day. You know, so we have early morning grazing. I don't let them graze through the day. We don't, I don't turn them out in the evening. And I think that works really well. But then they have a lot of freedom of movement in the barnyard and the barn and the arena. So it's not as though they're restricted. They just don't have the full access to the pastures. Yeah. And and I think that that's a good compromise. You know, one other thing that did happen, and I don't again don't know if it was coincidence, location, age, but poor Kizzy developed again my over 30 pony developed a horrible culicoides allergy when we moved up here. Um, you know, sweet itch. Yeah, and yeah. 
and it was just, and that was why when I, when I said, would you mind staying in the barn with Percy? She said, not at all. So she will go out for a couple hours and I'm still trying to figure out what the, it's sort of conflicting. It seems like the, the culicoides are worse at dawn and dusk. Yeah. And that's traditionally when I want to turn out. So she actually, she goes out with the others. Um, she goes out in the morning and I keep her just bundled up head to toe in a fly sheet. And then she comes in and I honestly think she'd be happy to stay out in the heat of the day as far as the bugs go. But then at night when I turn out, she says, no, I'll stay in the barn. Thanks. You know, she says, yeah. it's just, they're too bad. And she comes to the barn and says, let me in. Um, she gets to spend the night inside yeah. as opposed to out, but that's her decision. You know, I'm not locking her in. I, I hate to say it, but it's been an advantage of the pandemic that I'm home now. So I can leave them out as long as they want to in the morning. And when they, you know, cause I can see them out the window or I can hear them come thundering in. And that's when I drop everything and run out and open the doors and, and let them in. Otherwise I do have to say, no, you have to come in now because I'm leaving and I'm not gonna be home until two o'clock and you're gonna be miserable in a couple hours if the flies yeah. get bad, so. Yeah, and of course that's one of the great advantages of having your horses at home is that you can create, you know, you get to create the habitat and you get to create the rules. And in a boarding barn, you are living by somebody else's idea of land management and you're living on with the constraints that often, you know, where you have more horses than the land really can reasonably sustain decent pasture and so on. It's, it's a challenge. You're you're sharing resources with a lot of other horses and a lot of other, you know, every every horse owner has their wants. I want this for my horse. Uh, so that that's a challenge. But when you have when you have them on your own property, you get to run these experiments. You get to create pasture rotations and set up your your thirteen thirty whatever it was uh, pastures and rotate them around and. And see what works, and it's and it is a huge experiment, isn't it, Jane? Where it's yeah. let me let's let's test it, let's see what happens, yeah. and then let's make changes based on the data that you collect. And you know, like you said, it's a it's a quality of life issue because when my vet said Kizzy should not be out there, I wanted yeah, you know, I didn't want to kill her, but I, I also thought. I also don't want to make her live on dirt for whatever year she has left. Yes. And I looked at her and I said, look, you know, you can do this. I want you happy. You go out and eat all the grass you want. And I will put you down if you found her. Because to me, that was more important. You know, she was already, I mean, at that time she was in her late twenties. I had no idea she was going to live this long. <laughs> And I just said, for me, it's more important that you love the last year of your life. And if you found her and I have to put you down because it's bad, I would rather do that than watch you stand in a dirt paddock for the next five years and give you an extra four years of a low quality of life. And as it turned out, thankfully, I didn't have to do that. She, my, my experiment, as you said, 
um, panned out and I got lucky, but yeah. you know, that's why, you know, anytime I post pictures on social media of what my horses are on and the grass they're on and all that sort of thing, I say, look, don't take my word for it and do this. I don't want to be the cause of anybody else's horses foundering, but this is what I'm doing and it's working. And this is, I now have the, 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 um, the, the pasture sample results to prove why it's working. I have the historical understanding of rotational graze. You know, I'm not just going, forget it, you can go out. I have put a lot of thought into what I'm turning her out on and why I believe it's safe for her. So. Well, I've, I've seen this, I've seen it elsewhere. So you are not the first person hmm. where who is putting their very small equine out on very lush looking grass and the very small equine is just fine. Yeah. So you're not alone in this. Um, but you're also you also went into it with eyes wide open to say, you know, if you found her, I I will put you down. Yeah. That you're going into it with eyes wide open in terms of that could be the emotional heartache yeah. that will occur. But I'm making that choice that you, to give you a really good quality of life. It may be shorter, but at least it'll be fun while you while you can enjoy it which is important. Yep. And then, so, yep. and then backing you up, because you're not alone in this. You have a very knowledgeable land manager yep. in Ed. Yeah. And that's not to be discounted or dismissed, that you're not doing this by yourself, that that support in terms of judging what to do with the land is huge. And the discipline. When I don't have the discipline to take them off, yeah, he does. So he's, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a key piece because I've heard you say that a couple times in this conversation, where Ed would be saying, "You got to move them on, or you've got to yeah. put them on this other pasture, or you've got to not put them out here." That how useful and helpful it is to have that other set of eyes, knowledgeable eyes. And um, it is, and it really needs to be a day by day decision. It's not that somebody can say, okay, turn them out for five days and then move them. It's like, you know, he walks out to his barn every morning and he walks through my horse pasture and I'm like, what do you think? And some days it's four days, some days it's three days, some days it's five days, but it's his eye going, well, you know, and that's actually something I didn't mention was that I was shocked is not only is it not mob stocking now, but it's, only let them graze 50%. You should take them off it when there's 50% left, which is a hard thing to eyeball because is it, you know, it's not the grass is two feet tall and they've grazed everything down to one feet. You know, they've right. taken some of the two foot tall grass and grazed it down to three inches and other stuff they haven't touched. And, you know, and then there is the backup of being able to have him mow it if, if it needs to. And as much as I would love to have him go in and mow it after you take every pasture off, he's not going to go into all these paddocks and mow in and out and in and out. So it's like, okay, when you get half of them done, take down all those perimeter fences, which just makes me crazy. Um, and he'll, he can go in and then do a decent, you know, not be going round and round and round in circles because the paddocks are pretty big, but um, 
Now that's how I should describe it to you. There's probably five, two, three, four. I'll, I'll bet you there's about six tractor widths. And I'm talking, I know tractors oh, come in different okay. sizes. The, the paddocks yep. are probably six tractor widths wide and three times that long. Okay, so that's a fair size pasture. And then what would be different in terms of what he's doing for the cows and the sheep? He doesn't need the alleys because they stay out 24 seven. So when the okay. sheep are in the far end of the property, that's where they are and they go to the next paddock and the next paddock. With the horses, I need the alleys so they can go in and out and in and out and in and out several times a day, whether I want them or whether I need them in the barn. They are living out, you know, they're out 24 seven because they're ruminants. So they can handle that grass. They are all producing, you know, their, their nutritional needs are much, much higher than anything I have because all the livestock we have is at some stage of growth, whether it's lambs growing, whether it's ewes gestating or whether it's ewes with lambs at their side, those are all extremely high nutritional need phases yeah. of life as opposed to my middle-aged or senior horses who, you know, should be eating salad every day. <laughs> so the salad they get, as rich as their salad is, they only get a couple hours of it. They don't get 24 hours of it. So yeah, the ruminant versus monogastric thing is big because um, the amount they can eat and what they can eat is and how they eat. And how they eat. Yes. Yeah. And what they do, the land as they move over it. Yeah. All of that is different. And the numbers. So I'm assuming that he has more than six sheep. Yes, there are a couple hundred out. <laughs> yes. Yep. There are a couple hundred out there. And uh, and he's so he's moving fence, every, as I say, every 12 to 24 hours through most of the summer. Twice a day, he goes out first thing in the morning and lets him into another paddock. And, and when he moves the sheep, because I assume if he's moving them every day, that the sheep are learning pretty fast as well uh, in terms of, how to move them so there's minimal stress. Yeah, the little moves are easy. So like if there's a 10 acre field, there might be 20 paddocks and he uses the electric net. And it's a matter of, you know, opening one up into the next one and then closing it behind them. The bigger moves from field to field, we do have border collies. And actually the border collies are fairly essential sometimes even because he, he doesn't have to build four or five paddocks and then they go through those four or five. And at some point they can be sort of, there was one time a couple of years ago, <laughs> he was, I don't think he was just at work. I think he was away. And it was one of those situations where the grass would have been over Kizzy's back and the sheep got out. And if you, oh my word. And it was just one of those days where I watched the border collie and I was so in awe of her abilities and what she could do to go into this deep, deep grass. And I'd say, where are you going? And the next thing I knew, 15 sheep would come flying out of a couple of Then she, you know, and I'd get them in and she'd take off into the grass again and she'd bring me another handful because they had just scattered, you know, they hadn't, they were not flocked because they couldn't yeah. see each other. So they had scattered through this jungle of grass and those things happen. It's not a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. But, but yes, yeah, so we do have the border collies to help when we need to move field to field or, you know, at lambing time when everybody 
needs to come in and sort off the ewes that are being lambed. And so, yeah, I'm trying to think what other obvious differences that are too obvious for me to even think about. And that's, you know, I mean, it's interesting when, when he built the fence, something else he did because we have so much snow here, he actually set the permanent fence 30 feet off the road because that's how far the snowplow throws it. He didn't want the fence destroyed, but he grazes that 30 feet with temporary fence. You know, he puts up net right <laughs> up to the dirt road and they graze that strip and he moves them down there and then they got to go in the big field again. Not There isn't a blade of grass that gets wasted there. We have to pick our livestock guardian dogs carefully when we do that because one of them will jump out. The other one won't. So he's the one that gets to live along the road with them because he won't jump out of the permanent fence, but he'll, um, or the, the female will jump out of the temporary fence. So she's not allowed out there. So, you know, the dogs are incredibly helpful. There's no way we could do it without the dogs between the, the border collies moving them and the livestock guardian dogs protecting them. They're an essential part of that. And for the horses, I just bring them in. Yes, yes. <laughs> And, and you are creating a rich, biodiverse, healthy, beautiful, beautiful environment in Northern Vermont. We're pretty lucky. Yeah. Pretty lucky. So it just shows that, you know, we, with, with a little thought that we can have it all and we can make a difference, which is the whole point, that we can make a difference. Yeah. We can manage land well and end up having biodiversity that the planet needs yes. and the biodiversity that our horses need and it's all good yeah yeah it really is because they they're working on mars but for now this is the planet we got yes you know, take care of the one we've got yep yeah i don't really fancy living on mars i don't either i i <laughs> And I, and I don't fancy having this planet look like Mars. Right. So we definitely need to take care of it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for doing this, for educating wow. everybody about the, you know, what we can do when yeah. we feel so helpless so much of the time. Um, everybody play their little part and plant your yeah. herbs and feed your horses. Because the, the, the one thing that we can do something about is you know the land that we do have some the land that we have whether it is a suburban lawn an apartment patio mm -hmm. or a horse farm we have we have some say in what happens on that land yeah we don't have a lot of say in a, in a lot of the things that really matter you know we can go join the extinction rebellion or something and and maybe make a difference in that way but you know we to have a real direct, I can control this, I can have a say in it, and I don't have to get anybody else's permission. Yeah. You don't have to get anybody else's permission to do rotational grazing of your horses. Yeah. You can just do it. You know, I don't have to get anybody else's permission to shrink my lawn at the house. Yeah. I can just do it. Well, lucky you can, because there are people, places that you can't. Who, you know, well, it's where it dictates you, you need lawn, you're not allowed to grow your garden. So, but you can, you can be sneaky in terms of, of having it look 
like it's a beautifully managed property, but it's really, you know, you've planted an oak tree. Yes. You know, you've planted that oak tree. You've planted that nice little uh, patch of pollinators and you've put a little pretty fence around it. And, and the homeowners association thinks, oh, how nice you're growing. You've got those pretty black eyed Susans and, and it can work. It can work. Well, and, and also in our purchases, you know, of food that we eat just just even if you don't have control over the food that you are eating directly you can have by educating yourself about the way different plants are grown you can yes. make a difference in farmers markets and deciding you know which farmers you're going to support and and not blankly assuming that that all land can be food human food you know, like this, like I say, that, that silver pasture area, there's no way you could grow human food on that except beef. You know, you can grow meat on that, but you can't grow vegetables on it because it's way too steep and rocky. Right. So if you are a meat eater, be educated in where you are getting it and how it's grown and how it's impacting the, the land that it's on. And the same thing with the vegetables, you know, just just because it's vegetables doesn't mean that the farmers are doing a good job by their land. And just because it's organic doesn't mean that the farmers are doing a good job by their land. And I realize I'm talking spoiled again because I live in a rural area where I can drive around and see where my food is grown, but and not everybody has that option. But it's just another way you can make a difference by educating yourself about the way different individuals are growing things. And the more we do that, I mean, sometimes the more you know, the more, oh, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing. And it can be paralyzing. And I think that was one of the reasons that I found Dr. Tallamy's work so hope, hopeful, because the more you hear about the climate change and the more you read about, uh, you know, how food is grown, mm-hmm. you know, like the reading and it's been years now since he published it, but The Omnivore's Dilemma, and how anybody can read that book and buy food that comes from a feedlot is, and that has nothing to do with, you know, my being a vegetarian. It's just that, as you say, that choice of if you're going to eat meat, it, it can be paralyzing at times, given what we're hearing. And so to be able to say, you know, I planted an oak tree yeah. and it can support 500 plus species of insects that produce caterpillars. And, uh, you know, I, I can do that on my little patch of land. Yeah. Um, I think right. that feels, that feels empowering yeah. and it feels hopeful. And then I can make, yeah. begin to make choices in terms of what I buy at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Do I buy it at the grocery store? What are yeah. the options? Yeah. Yeah. And is the organic plastic package thing better or is the loose inorganic? It's like, ah! yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's why you're right. That's why the Hunger National Park is so nice because it, you know, you can make a direct difference. You can just do it and you can 
you can get the benefits of it. You know, you can enjoy the wildlife that comes. You can enjoy the the biodiversity, and then um, I love that their map is now live, so you can go in and see that it's every day. It's they're getting more people joining in, and that's hopeful and encouraging. Um, you know, so it's yeah, it it definitely is a is a nice reinforcing way to yes to make a difference. Yes. And just that that idea of what we do with the land matters. Yeah. You know, um, right. And that we, if we can maintain those healthy pastures that are not being fed a junk food diet of artificial chemical fertilizers, and if we can get the, that deep root system uh, and we can get the mycorrhizal fungi doing, you know, really uh, beautifully established because we're not leaving all that bare ground and compacting the ground and all the rest of that, then you know, we can we can make a significant difference. You know, we can be sequestering yeah. carbon. We can be we can be doing a lot more than just what appears on the surface. We're just growing grass for our horses. We're doing so much more. Right. Yeah. And we we can do it without having to give up some of the other things that we want to do with the land. So what you're demonstrating, Jane, is that you can do this and still have a commercial sheep and beef cattle, and you can do it and still have your horses. Yeah. You know, you can do all of this, and you haven't had to give up also having healthy land. Right. Yep. Yeah, like you say, it is. Having having your cake and eating it too. So Yep. Which is always a good thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More cake. More cake. Yes. That seems like that seems like a very good note to end on. More cake. <laughs> yeah. So thank you immensely. Thank you for listening. I'm having enormous fun traveling around the planet learning about what others are doing with their pastures. It's certainly given me lots of food for thought in terms of how best to manage my own horse pastures, and I hope it's doing the same for you. Next time, we'll be heading to a very different climate from Vermont. We're going to be going to California for a visit with Sarah Owings. Many of you will know Sarah from the Clicker Expo. She's a dog trainer. She doesn't have horses yet. I say yet because she's only recently bought her property. She bought her land in 2020, so she's just beginning to figure out what she wants to do with it. And we'll see if in the future that includes having some herbivores along with her dogs. It's a great time to check in with her to see what her beginning steps have been and where her thinking is taking her. Often when you take on a new property, it can be overwhelming. Where do you begin? How are you going to be a good steward for that land? Sarah is great at doing her homework. And recently that homework has included looking at some of the concepts that Dr. Doug Tallamy is talking about in his homegrown national parks. So. I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with Sarah to see where her ideas are taking her. 
And I'm also curious because the landscape that she's working with, the environment that she's in, is so very different from my own. And certainly it's another one of those places where fire is a very real concern. So the things that she has to think about as she learns how to manage her property and bring back natives, the things that she has to think about are very different from what I need to think about here in snow country in upstate New York. So join me next time for a great conversation. And remember, all of us who have land, and that means anything from a patio filled with plants to many acres under our care, all of us can make a difference. And together, we're learning how. <music>